reading is the first psalm. You can follow along in your bulletin. Oh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're starting a new sermon series on the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a great sermon series. We've chosen it for two very important reasons. The first reason being that you can go through the Psalms um, by just picking a psalm and doing it. In the summer, you guys are so hit or miss, or whether you're here or not, you can just pick up on any old psalm and keep going. Uh, so that's a very practical reason why we did it. But there's a not-so-practical reason why we did it, very deep spiritual reasons why we did it as well. And so I'm going to spend a little time just trying to introduce the Psalms, the Psalter. Sometimes they're, they're saying we're going to go through August uh, uh, with these, um, and um, and want to talk to you a little bit about them as a whole. And the reason why we picked the Psalms for the the real reason or the spiritually real reason is because um, we have trouble with emotional vocabulary, not just getting the words out, but getting uh, words to the things that are going on inside of us. The spiritually tumultuous, the emotionally tumultuous, the difficulty of feeling like uh, sometimes we're reduced to how do you feel good, how do you feel bad. Um, and uh, and there's a full range of emotions that we have. I can't tell you how many times uh, in the last month um, or so that I've that maybe even dozens of times I've said you know you know what would really be good for you right now as you're kind of feeling through all these losses and and excitements and things like that is a good steady diet of the Psalms, a good steady diet of the Psalms. The Psalms give us words. The Psalms was the original hymn book of Israel. It was uh it was you know the the hymn book is what you picked out to read to sing and um, and uh, it gives us words to sing and. And uh, words to grieve over and sing and to hope. It's a pathway for our hearts and a balm for our souls. Um, as you go throughout these psalms, you see that there are words for joy and grief and worship and even cursing. Um, as uh, Matt Howell said, as we were talking about this this week, he says, the psalms are spicy. <laughs> for cursing, for forgiveness and vengeance, for mercy and justice. For categories is how to hate rightly and love sacrificially. Things that we can and should hate. Things that we ought love. It teaches us how to sing our way through life. And not just sing shiny, shiny, happy, happy, you know, shiny, happy people. But whether it's the blues or it's songs of triumph, it gives us things to sing with. And I want us to spend the next 12 or so weeks thinking about the category that you might be in as you respond to these songs. Some will really dig some of you, some of them. You cynics out there are going to love the psalms of lament and sadness 
and the world is awful and don't tell me there's anything good. It'll be really frustrating for you when the ends of the Psalms will say things like, and your Lord, your presence is with us. You're like, oh. We have the cynics and they're going to come and respond with, oh, Pastor G, I know, I get it. You're going to tell me that I got to trust Jesus and in the end it'll work out. And But you don't understand the tyranny of my particular lot in life. You don't understand that I don't have a normal life or that I don't have had the same normal sufferings, that I don't have a, the right job I want or spouse I want or, um, or experiences that I've been wanting to have. And everything you're going to say is going to just sound too fluffy, pie-in-the-sky, rose-colored. It's not going to be keeping it real because we all know that if it's real, it must be bad. See, y'all are way too cynical because you actually were like, yeah, I get it, uh-huh. No, real and bad. You, you have to account for good, you cynics. You have to account for it. The real issue there with us as cynics is that it is much more terrifying to deal with a God who might just love us and be good to us as we go through these psalms, even amidst the lament. But then we have our cynics in our midst. I'm going, I'm thinking this is about a third, a third, and a third in our church as I've thought about it. We have the cynics and then we have the sanctimonious. This is the half self-righteous, half scared to death to actually deal with your emotions. God's in control, that settles it. Now stop. Doesn't matter how I feel. It's going to work out. Suck it up. Put your big girl panties on and deal. (laughs) And this is too out of fear as much as pride. Sometimes our sanctimonious response is distrust is, is actually showing us our distrust of God in the hardest places, in the, time, the places in between, in the most difficult parts of our hearts. We grin and bear it, stuffing the tumult of emotions that are pounding at our hearts and heads. And we use biblical truth sometimes, and I say use it because it's not really biblical truth when you use it wrongly, but we use biblical truth to become emotional zombies, half dead, half alive to our emotional life, our spiritual life. We become Dr. Spock's stoics. Things like that. First third, second third, last third. And this is a big chunk of us too. We have the naive. Many of us here are just trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing. Naive isn't bad. Naive is just, you know, I would say ignorant, but that sounds even worse. So I don't mean it like that. I mean, we just don't know what's going on in here or out there or in this Bible. We don't quite get it. This whole Christianity is kind of new to us. We're trying to feel our way through what Christian community is. We're trying to figure out if we even buy into it. Seekers thinking about these kinds of things. And so we're feeling wonderfully liberated at Christ Central Church. So if you're mad at somebody, you cuss them out. You feel incredibly liberated to just cut people off if they're going to treat you wrongly. Hang out and do what you want. If you like them, date them. If you don't like them, leave them alone. Something like that. Or we get caught in town this, these, uh, caught or choose to hide in the background of large personalities. We let shame paralyze us so that we can't feel at all. Or we find audiences of one or a hundred and we show everything we've got. We flash our emotions around the world or we become voyeurs and looking for another one that, for, for, uh, for, for the uh, kind of emotional hit from another. And the truth is, Christ Central, not only are we divided one-third, one-third, and one-third about, we're all all three-thirds, some way, some shape, or form. 
we all do this. And so I'm asking you as a kind of intro to all of the Psalms, as you think about these next 12 weeks, as you're dealing with these things, think about who you are and how you are in this thing. And we turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Now, that should be important. Usually if you're going to make a hymnal, you pick a really good first psalm, right? It's the, it's the, the first track released on the album, right? It's the, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the, the CD that's released. It's a, and this isn't just an album. This is like, you know, it's 150 psalms. This is like a, the box set, you know? Scholars have said for a long time in almost complete agreement that this wasn't the first psalm written. It was put here to be those introductory lines, to let us understand how the psalm's going to work as a whole. God's hymn book for his people comes out with some kind of strange things at first. And it's almost a little bit too, um, uh, too succinct, reductionistic. Very short, eight lines. There's a, uh, there's a, there are poems, uh, there are psalms that are, that are pages long. But this one's very short, eight lines, very tight. And it's called a wisdom psalm. We're going to go through lots of different kinds of psalms to give you a taste of things. But this is called a wisdom psalm. And wisdom in scripture means the art of biblical living. How do you kind of make life work? And um, I guess it would be the science and art, just kind of both, of, of biblical living. Um, and it's an extraordinary poem, people have said for a long time. Um, but it can kind of read like a maxim or a proverb. In fact, most of them say it was, it was originally was, was a proverb. And so it can kind of be like a bumper sticker on the back of your pimped out chariot in Jerusalem. You know, this kind of little bit of a, a, of a short statement on the front, on the back of your car. Not all who wander are lost. Practice acts of random kindness and senseless beauty. Or my new favorite, coexist. This is wisdom splashed on the page of cover notes. And we need to see that this is this kind of reductionistic kind of thing. And it's meant to be that. Because this psalm basically says there are only two realities in this world. You can even see it in its structure. Uh, you know me, I'm an English major, so I was diagramming the poem and having lots of fun with it after I had kind of experienced it and let it wash over me. Then I was like, how does it work? How is it happening? Um, uh, and you'll see that if you could if you could write it all out, you'd see that there's this, the first topic A is about the blessed man and then the second topic, and then it has B, which is the tree and kind of a description of it. And then it goes to B, which is the um, the description of the uh, of the not righteous man or the wicked. And then, so it kind of goes this kind of A, B, A, B, and there's only two types of people There are two images, chaff and tree. There are two sections that explain both of those things. There are two lines that end the poem with the two fates of the two types of people that exist. It's it's as black and white as you can make it. And I think it can be kind of troubling a little bit. You see through this structure, but not just the structure that's kind of the A, B, B, A. I know that spells Abba. Uh, And then A, B. But it's also got the structure of um, the, the, of the it's not just the structure, it's the content. 
Look at these, uh, look at that passage for you. You got the law of God in two and the counsel of the wicked. You see conceptually how that's the same? You got the law of God and the counsel, kind of guidance, if you will. Stand with God in five. Stand with sinners in one. Tree, chaff, we already did that, three and four. Yielding fruit, but withering in three. Planted, blown away by the wind. Belonging to God, not belonging to the congregation, six and five. Righteous, and then wicked, or righteous, and then sinners. Known and perishing. Do you see the spoil that's going on here? There's a clear um, bifurcation of the world and of the people in it. Psalm 1 reduces intentionally to two things. Sinner and saint, tree and chaff. Those who will be gods and those who will perish. And it should be troubling. It should be troubling for a lot of reasons. Dr. Odette Valder, our psychiatrist in residence at Christ Central Church, at least we call her that. I've heard her say it to clients and to myself. You need to be careful of your black and white thinking. You need to be careful that you've made this, you've reduced it into some type of rigid dualism or you're going to find yourself trapped. It can be certifiable, if you will. When you respond to this, when you're first reading this this uh, this um, psalm, you're you're trying to get a feel for where you are on the block. But I want you to know that the the crazy thing, or the difficult thing, or the certifiable thing, isn't actually saying that there are two outcomes in the world. That's not that nuts. What, um, all humanity is chaff or tree. I get that. But it's what we can do when we flip our thinking while we're dealing with it. That, that there's two things. What, what the, what the, what, let me just say this. What the scripture's doing isn't actually um, doing something as, as difficult as you think it is. It's basically saying that there is no neutrality when it comes to God. There's no just ignoring it. He either exists and has to be dealt with one way or another... Or, well, or nothing. He exists. It asserts from the scriptures that he does exist and he has to be dealt with one way or another. He, there is no neutrality. Every part of our hearts and our heads, uh, our, our strength and our spirits have a claim on them to be the Lord's. It's not the black and white stuff or the, what do you call this, the, the two-state solution of eternity that's the problem. It's that when we, when we hear about this bifurcation, we add something to it. We move from God describing people in terms of wicked and righteousness, or wicked and righteous, quickly, without even thinking about it, in a reader response way, to us and them. That is not the same thing. It both logically doesn't stand up, and it's not the intent of the scripture, us and them. And what happens whenever you do an us and them, or not whenever you do an us and them, but often when you do an us and them, it's only a half step away from us versus them. Right? Which is only a half step away from oppression and genocide. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Language matters. What we need to see is that what, he, what, the, what the scripture is saying is that there's nothing neutral in the universe that either responds to God in a way that sees God and honors it or doesn't see God and denies it or sees God and dishonors it. There's no neutral. 
you see, we move from truth and ultimately that all people are trapped in tree to doing our best to try to make ourselves fit tree. Or fit chaff even, if we want to be on the bad side of things, because we're having a bad day. We start to make those things that are different about us, uh, or where we decide what's chaff and what's tree, we, we decide that there's something innate in us that's going on there that makes us chaff or tree. And then we find out that, oh, it's something innate in them that makes them chaff or tree. And it doesn't take long to get to concentration camps and burning crosses. It just doesn't. No neutrality does not mean us versus them. Let me tell you very specifically that us versus them is something that we talked about. If you, there are folks, I'm going to let you in a little secret of Christ Central. When we met, met in a group of about 20 people in, uh, in a group before we ever started a worship service, there's probably 15 of them here. And we said, we will not speak in terms of us versus them. We're not going to do it. We're just not going to do it. We've been really clear from the beginning about the redemption of all humanity. We've been really clear that we think that God owns every speck of dirt on the, on, in, the, in the world and that every heart has to yield to Him one way or another. We're not afraid to say that, but we're not making an us versus them in all that. We, just like Jane Ramsey and her parents, both need God. We all need God. We all need Christ. But we're not going to have an us versus them. Uh, Amanda and I watched Grand Torino last night. And my, my head was just going ding, ding with all this us versus them stuff. First of all, Gran Torino is, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying it deals with a lot of these issues. And um, believe it or not, um, uh, Clint Eastwood plays uh, a grumpy, violent man. Um, <laughs> this time, he's a grumpy, old, violent man in this one. Uh, uh, so it's real different. Um, and uh, and uh, he plays a grumpy, old, violent man. And he is racist as the day is long. That man is so racist. He's got more racial slurs than I knew. And I grew up in a pretty situation that could know a lot. They were all over the place. It was amazing. But his whole, the whole thing that's going on there is, uh, is his, his next door neighbors are Hmong. And, uh, and he's got them all figured out as these people who've just come in and invaded his neighborhood and all the racial, racist kind of stuff you would think about. And, uh, and he has to, he picks, uh, they're in the car together. He and the, uh, kind of, uh, um, uh, pro, the female protagonists is, 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 are in the, in the car together and she, he's like, what are y'all doing here anyway? I'm, I'm helping you with all, none of the racial slurs or jokes that are coming out of there. What are y'all doing anyway? She said, he goes, he goes, basically, why don't you go back? And she said, well, oh yeah, she said, he goes, where is Mong anyway? Mong's a people group, not a place. And, uh, and he goes, she says, well, it's, we don't, well, there isn't a Mong. <laughs> you know, this is, this is who we are and this is what happened. We actually, and this guy, and one of the reasons why Clint Eastwood is grumpy is because he's a war veteran who saw a bunch of horrible things and, um, um, and, and, and so he, she says, she says, well, we actually fought with you in Vietnam. You recruited us to do that. It's, this is all verifiably true in, in, uh, in, in, in history and stuff like that it can be seen as called the secret war. We, uh, got people to come in and fight against, uh, different people groups. And, uh, when I say we there, I mean United States. And, uh, and, um, and, and then when we left, we left them to fend for themselves. And the communists kind of took over in that area and they fled to all different places, including where Gran Torino is filmed or is, is located in terms of the story in, in, in uh, Michigan. Um, there's also a huge Hmong community in, uh, Charlotte. I was actually part of a, a, a church plant with, uh, 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 
Pastor Sang, who actually started planting over here on 36th Street. You know that Methodist church just right, right down the road? They uh, planted one of the first Hmong churches right out of that building right there. It's pretty cool. Anyway, that's not what this is about. What, he, what comes up is that he realizes that the us's them get switched on it because the Hmong were actually an us at one point, And so he can't make them fully them. And it starts to break his heart. It starts to change the whole flavor of his relationship with his neighbors. The us and them is the issue. Psalm 1 doesn't intend to nuance things like we want them to do. It's going to let the next 149 Psalms figure things out for us. But it does intend to make some stark realities of what is, what is, uh, that there is no neutrality and that we have to respond to God. But it never creates an us versus them. Yes, it creates an eternal reality. You will either be part, uh, you will either be, uh, no, the, the Lord will either know you or you will perish. But it's not creating an us versus them in it. It's creating two categories. But not ones that are owned necessarily by our people or our people group. See, you respond, when you respond to Psalm 1, you want to find clarity. Which one am I? Which one am I? Am I? Which one am I going to be? And this is what's so beautiful about the psalm is that it gets real fuzzy real quick. Keep reading. It doesn't move from clear to clear or from fuzzy to clear like so much of Scripture does. It moves from clear to fuzzy. And one of the reasons it does that is because it creates these progressions in the poem. And it's basically asking us, to examine how we progress or how, examine the progressions in the poem and then examine our own progressions in our heart and to question our affections. How do we feel and think about things? Look at this, exa- this, um, this ex- examination of our, our progressions. Look at here in verse 1. Do you see this? Oh, blessed is the man who walks. You see, I tried to uh, write it out for you so you could you can see. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinner, or sits in the seat of the scoffers. You see the progression? You're walking along, then you're standing with them, and then you're sitting down. It's a progression of closeness. It's a progression of, of uh, levels of deeper commitment and closer interaction. Where you are the scoffer at the end, right? You're sitting among the scoffers. What's that make you? A scoffer, right? And then you see this, it starts with kind of this counsel or uh, this council, which is more like getting advice, and, and, and so you're walking among the council or amidst the council, or you're standing in the way, which is like way of life of sinners, or you sit in the phone, in, in the, in the kind of fellowship, and, and you gotta think now in terms of like a small group setting where you're in. You're in the fellowship. The elders sat in circles of different towns and things like that. So you're sitting amid the scoffers. This means that you, um, are connected, almost, um, almost bought in, almost kinshipped with, covenanted with. And all this makes me think of is those great, can you say great when you say meth commercials? Those great, effective meth commercials. Those effective meth commercials. You know the Partnership for Meth-Free North Carolina? It starts with, before I tried to kill myself, I went to jail. Before I went to jail, I stole my mother's you know, car. Before I stole my mother's car, I um, flunked out of school. Before I flunked out of school, I, uh, I'm making this up as I go. Uh, before I flunked out of school, I, uh, um, I, I felt better than I've ever felt in my life. Before I ever felt better in my, in my life, I tried meth. 
right? Partnership for Direct Feed. Y'all listen to NPR? Because this is the only place I've ever heard it. <laughs> Swing and a miss. Okay. But you get this idea. All right. Where it's this progression of things. And I think, goodness gracious, before we get all self-righteous, sanctimonious, if you will, and figure out exactly who we are, we should probably think about how we've, how we've walked and stood and sat. Credit cards? I can remember going to my P.O. box at Davidson, getting flooded with credit card applications and crissing cross through the campus, walking, if you will, in the council uh, uh, of the credit card companies. I won't call them wicked, but the council of the credit card companies. And they were going to offer you, which there are very few higher desired possessions in college than a free t-shirt and a frisbee. (laughs) Giving you free t-shirt and a frisbee for 18%. Right? Walking in the council of the wicked, something like that. Soon it proves too much and you're like, I really do need new CDs for me. I need to change out my tape collection to CDs. Yeah, I know. You can get everything you need, by which I mean want, and someone will loan you money for it. They'll give it to you. And you realize that you've actually not just bought in, but you've bought all. And you now don't just walk in the counsel of the wicked, but you stand in the way of sinners. And next thing you know, you're peddling the ideas on your own friends. You know, now that you've graduated, you really need to go into debt to buy something to establish your credit. Now, I know establishing credit is a good thing. But you've bought in like establishing your credit is righteousness from on high. Where you can actually peddle your way into, into, into knowing the real value of the world. Or you can pay for cash for the rest of your life. Huh. You know, that's an option. We sit in the seat of scoffers. What about money? Forget money, I mean. What about sex? You walk around the council of the wicked or the aisles of your grocery store, the TV shows that you flip through, and you start thinking the council that comes your way is that I really should be gratified and I should be gratified instantly. You receive the counsel that you're just a man or you're just a woman. And then you progress and you start uh, moving from kind of uh, walking into standing and you progress to where you're practicing the trades of, of sexual stimulation and all sorts of lines, uh, sorts of online relationships or real relationships or relationships you don't even want to be in but you feel obligated to because you bought in beforehand with your mind. You move in and you start to sit with the seat of scoffers. You start saying things like, you know, you really should live together and have sex a few times first so you can kind of know what you're getting into before you get married. And you're all the way in. And you don't even know it. Or what about body image? Again, walking around the supermarkets can help you there. Walking down the aisle of the wicked and shining these white teeth and these airbrushed bodies. And their skin telling you that you can... uh, uh, The counsel of losing 15 pounds and... How to turn that person on or to dress for success. They'll even give you a survey for further understanding. 
perusing ads that your face isn't right if it has a wrinkle or your anatomy is too small or too droopy or too old. You go through and you move from walking around to standing in the Botox line or the tummy tuck line or the spray on tan. And again, I'm not saying any of this stuff is wrong in and of itself. But you know how it works. Next thing you know, your daughter, because of all the comments that you've made, you, male or female, have made, and sticking her finger down her throat in the back of the bathroom when you leave the restaurant, before you leave the restaurant. And she had ten fries off her brother's plate, and you're willing to go run with her to run it off. Look, I'm being reductionistic. I'm trying to be like Psalm 1. It's all or nothing, baby. And Gran Torino, at, some, at one point he goes, that kid doesn't have a chance unless something drastic happens. It's all or nothing. It goes one way or another. And it's supposed to be reductionist. It's supposed to take all the complexities of our emotional lives and our spiritual lives and kind of bring them on, break them all down so that we can experience what we're talking about. It's the old frog boiling in the pot, which every preacher in the history of all sermons has used at least once. And this is my first go of it, and I'm really excited. You know what it is, right? The pot and the, the, uh, the, I'm gonna mess up my first one ever. Uh, if you wanna boil a frog, for whatever reason you would want to boil a frog, if you wanted to boil a frog, you don't put a frog in boiling water. What happens? He jumps out. But if you wanna boil a frog, for whatever reason you might wanna boil a frog, you would put the frog in the water, turn the heat on, and let it slowly boil. And that's why you'll kill it. It'll slowly not recognize the heat temperature, his own heat temperature. And you'll get them that way because I'm sure you want to eat a frog. But the point is we don't recognize what's going on. You see how it's getting fuzzier with this kind of progression that we need to examine our progressions? This does not mean, please hear me, you know we're Christ-centric. You know we're not going to go off the deep end on this one. This doesn't mean you don't go hang out with people who don't believe or aren't pure as if you were. This is, again, the us-them thing. It just means watch yourself. Where are you going with what you're doing? Your behaviors are not just expressive, they are formative. They change you. You are not just who you are, you are who you're becoming. You're becoming who you are and your habits of heart and mind help you there. And now it's not just that. This Psalm 1 asks us to question our affections as well. Look at His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now talking about the blessed man. And on His law, He meditates day and night. Meditation it's kind of, is, a, is, is kind of a soul work, if you will. You're mulling over and you're, you're groaning after the scriptures. And delight is a, a term of affection, is it not? It's not just watch your behavior, watch what you think about, but it's love the Lord your God with all your strength and mind and heart and soul. Heart and soul as well. Where is your heart? Where is your soul? I'm so excited because I think Omari's week for preaching uh, is Psalm 119, which is that one I was telling you about. It's about 50 pages long, uh, which we won't make you read all of that, uh, Omari, but you have to preach on all of it. Um, no. Um, and it's this incredible passage uh, uh, that actually is in like 20-some stanzas, how many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet, because every stanza gets a new uh, new letter for the Hebrew alphabet. And not just that, so Aleph is A, so Aleph gets its own stanza, but every line in Aleph starts with, uh, in the stanza Aleph starts with Aleph. 
And the same with all the way through, all, all the way through the, uh, through the alphabet. Listen, that takes meditation and delight on the law of the Lord. Does it not? Y'all, I love Christ Central. Christ Central is my favorite church in the world. But we struggle here to meditate and delight and the law of God. We don't even like the word law. We think it must be out to get us. We don't think of it as God's best for us. Like he's not really trying to hurt us, like good rules that your parents have. I'm not talking about the bad rules your parents had, the good rules your parents had that actually saved your tail from getting in a lot of trouble. We don't like that because we're free. Or we think we're free. But no, what we're free to do is free because of what Jesus has done in our hearts. Free to move in and, and, and be challenged by His goodness to us. What I want us to be more like is like the old uh, Jewish tradition was before you read the law for little kids, they would make, they would, you would pay, take honey and put it on your lips so that you'd have this sweet taste in your mouth as you read the law of God. This is what I want for us. And it, I, I feel ashamed because it's not the biggest part in my own life. And so, of course, it's not going to be the biggest part in our own congregation's life. But I pray that the Lord, by His Spirit, would continue to make us honey-lipped for His Word. That would keep us out of these boiling frog situations and these meth commercials. And we'd be a little bit more in terms of delight. That we would meditate and delight on His Word and we'd see what is good. And then we don't... What's happened, through, I guess, through this whole thing is that we're moving from us and them or us versus them to us as them. So now we're all in it together. Because I was talking with our intern, Andrew. I didn't even ask you if I was going to tell you this, but I, I'm going to tell everybody now. Um, that, uh, that, that we were talking about the psalmist. Says, How does it make you feel? And he's like, I was feeling kind of good about the first part, but the whole affection, delight thing, I, don't know, I might be on the chap side, not the, the tree side on this one. See, what's done is it's fuzzied it enough to go, oh, oh, we're broken, we're a mess. We need something else. We need someone. Our reader response experience of this is like, uh, maybe us and them isn't working. Maybe it's us as them, and which means there is no distinction in one sense at all. <laughs> in Gran Torino at one point, uh, he says, um, Clint Eastwood says, something like, I like these people or these people know me better than my own family. And so the us and them is gone now. Right? But the only us and them is gone is because there's family that's tied to it. And they actually become his own family. They become actual... I don't want to ruin everything, but we'll just say they become family. Um, that's what this psalm ultimately is doing. It's not asking... It's doing what Torino, the Grand Torino is doing. Like every good gang movie ever does. Every good mob or gang movie is asking, who's in? Whose are you? Where do you belong? Right? That's what Psalm 8 is asking. And it's asking it in a way to have you answer it. And it's having you answer it in a way that says, the distinguishing point isn't us or them, righteousness or wickedness on our own, but whose are you? Whose are you? Not what do you do. The what do you do only pushes back to whose you are. That's its purpose. And so it is also about belonging. 
And it's not just asking, who am I in this, in this section, but how do I get to be in the tree side of things because I'm not presently up to par? How do I get there? Whose am I? Because the question and setting these hard categories of no neutrality is actually sets its forth as anybody I've ever asked this question is, how do I get there? Which one, how can I be on the right side of this thing? How's this going to work? All this kind of structure of no neutrality is actually an invitation to look into what the trees are and how you get there. Look at what it says. It says that he is Lord, that he is um, Lord. And if you see in the, in the, in the, um, in the passage there that Lord is spelled with O-L-O-R-D as capitalized. The reason I did that and the reason why your NIV, your New International Version does that is so that it cues you to an actual familial term. Instead of uh, Elohim or another use, use of the word for God, it's actually saying it says Yahweh, God's name, the name he gave himself over his people. It's a familial term, if you will, not quite familial, but definitely a recognizable relational term, a fatherly term maybe. This is our Lord who knows us. See, that it's not us, them, it's his that is the most important thing. You see this in the congregation of the righteous, some of the language that's used there. You see that it is uh, it is to be known until the end. So you can say, Lord knows, in a real sense. Yes, Lord knows who and whose you are. That's what's going on there, going on in there. Romans 15 talks about the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will rise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Talking about Jesus. The root of Jesse will come. It comes from Isaiah and, and Romans talks about it as that being Jesus, this one who comes to be a tree for us. To be a tree for us. And what it does is it says that we have this kind of um, unmerited access to this righteousness. An unmerited access to this righteousness. Look, I wish we were farmers because then we would see things like trees and not ever have merit on our mind. Sometimes we look at these description of things and we think, oh, well, I just need to be better this, be better that, be better that. No, 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 no. It's blessed. There's a divine passive. Is there somebody blessing when someone's blessed? Yes. Planted by the waterside. Divine passive. You need a planter, right? You need someone to actually be the source of things. You can't, you, you put yourself next to a water? No. The water feeds you. If you were farmers, you would never ever think that you, uh, that your hard work was the thing that got the things grown. Right? You'd be like, yeah, I'm glad I tilled and did some stuff, but really, if it don't rain, we're dead. And I'm not in charge of rain. It's an, a source outside of ourselves that makes us these things. And when I say us, I mean the us and thems that we've created are now a big us that needs to be a his. (laughs) So we turn to him and say, we have no source on our own. This is a blessing. This is a people who are blessed. Yes, the others will wither. Whoever they are, they will wither. But if you want access to him, if you want access to this blessedness to be a stream of to be planted by a stream of water and filled and yielding fruit in season and leaves that do not wither... And prosper in all your ways. Yes, it's reductionist. Yes, the psalm is going to teach us more about this. Yes, it's talking about everything reduced in its smallest form. This is why it ends with eternity at the end. Yes, I get it. It's more complicated and nuanced than that. But the bottom line is, if you are his, you will live 
strong and you will live forever. That's what he's saying. That you are his unmerited so, his forever. His kindness and his blessing upon us, his love for us, his keeping of us. That's what this is about. It's an intrinsic invitation to be his. Trees are an important thing. If you did the history of trees in the Bible, you would see that we started with a tree there, one we could eat, one we couldn't. And when we ate of one, we weren't allowed to eat of either. Trees are important because we're called oaks of righteousness as the Lord helps us and keeps us. We're called trees standing by the waterside here. Trees are important because Israel's called this tree that gets cut off for its faithlessness, that gets regrafted, that gets, uh, the, the, the Gentiles from the root of Jesse come forth, and then it gets regrafted later, later on. And in Revelation it says, on each side of the river stood a tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Sound familiar? And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. He who has ears, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise for God. Re-access into the garden where we can eat of the tree of life. And yes, there is that important tree that Peter says on which he bore our sins. Trees are important things. And Jesus says, to switch the image a bit, well, in Romans 11, he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. Y'all, the blessed man, ultimately has to be Jesus. Because none of us are going to fit. And unless this blessed man makes us right through the other tree, the tree that is his cross, then we won't be holy. But because he is holy, we his branches can be as well. Y'all, this is a psalm of, a psalm, so it's a song. And we usually end with prayer. But I want to end with prayer this time. I'd like to end with singing, because that's what we should do. And as the band and musicians come up, I'd ask that you would join me. Stand up and sing the doxology with me. I need someone with a good voice to quickly uh, fix it as soon as I start it. Uh, Yeah, I was serious. Stand up and sing. Psalm 1, guide you into the rest of the Psalter that helps us sing whether the blues are songs of triumph through life. Let's sing Amen. our closing hymn. No, not-